0: to the St Emlyn's podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Cowley. And this is a special double edition. This is partly because Christmas was busy and Simon and I have been busy doing other things, more of which in a minute. But today we're going to cover our November and December blog posts. So lots to talk about. But before we start, Simon, there's a couple of things we should mention first up. I am now talking to the Dean of the Royal College of Emergency Medicine. I, I can't believe you've got time for me. Oh, we've got time for you, Ian. No, I'm really excited, actually. And um, this is day two we're recording
1: on. Uh, lots to do, lots to think about. And, you know, I'm really happy about it. It's a job I've wanted for 25 years.
0: So tell us a little bit. What does the Dean do for the Royal College of Emergency Medicine? So essentially what the Dean does is look after all the academic activities of the college. So
1: things like your training programmes, the curriculum, the exams, the academic cluster with regard to research and teaching and all of that kind of thing. Now, I don't do all of that myself. Got in some incredibly talented people running the committees like the TSC committee and the exams committee and the head of exams and all that kind of thing. Brilliant college staff. So lots and lots of things to do. Um, A lot of work to be done. And, you know, there's no shame in saying that we've had a few problems with the college in terms of exams. I'm sure people will be aware of that. But there's lots of activity ongoing now to make sure that those things don't happen again in the future. The thing about the dean is what the dean is in charge of is the future the dean's role is to look at how we're developing as a specialty, what the new curriculum is, how do we make it happen? How do we get the trainees of today to become the
0: consultants of the future? And that's really exciting. You do sound really excited, actually. and That's lovely to hear. And I'm sure everybody who's listening will be delighted to know they've got a dean whose voice they may recognise and who they know how to contact. You even have another Twitter handle now. So the Twitter accounts are, are increasing exponentially. Yes, I just remember need to remember which one I'm tweeting on at the moment. That's uh, that's a potential risk there. So that's one of our first big bits of news. The second bit is the planning for St Emlyn's Wild. Now, Rusty and Simon and many others are working very hard to deliver quite a special conference later this year, and there will be many, many more details coming out. But in essence, this is a weekend in the Northwest, in the countryside. So for all of those of us who live in cities and crave a bit of nature, this will be perfect. But not just nature, crammed full of education and team building and all the other stuff that well, I think, Simon, we've learned from bad EM in South Africa and taken some of the lessons from that. Absolutely. So it's a combination of clinical excellence. We're going to do a lot of
1: brands. Um, the things that we do on St. Emlins about developing people's clinical skills at the boundaries where people, things are difficult, not necessarily clear, and you're having to make difficult decisions. So we're going to concentrate on that is the clinical aspect. We're also going to do a lot of leadership and team building um, activities. And I know that sounds a bit sort of twee, but Actually, the leadership activities we're going to be doing will be combined with the clinical elements in a way which I don't think many people will have seen before. It's going to be very exciting. It's going to be really hard work for us and for participants. It will be very challenging. It will be at times it will be quite difficult. But in terms of reaching loads of aspects of the curriculum around the clinical aspects and also the leadership and the team working, I think it's going to be remarkably
0: good. And we're very much hoping to make this an affordable weekend for for all. There will be camping options. The dates for this for your diaries is the 9th to the 11th of June. So we'll be very much into an English summer. Uh, I would hope. I mean, the cricket season has started, so that is summer. So the 9th to the 11th of June, taking place in the Northwest. More information to come. Lots, lots more information to come. But please put that in your diary. Look out for when the tickets are released. And I'm hoping they'll sell quite quickly. So please do, if you're interested, be quick to get onto those. Simon, we should get onto the blog post before we uh run out of our our time. And so let's just go through a few of the posts from November and December. And let's start off with, well, some evidence-based medicine. The alternative defibrillation strategies in refractory VF, the DOSE-VF trial. There's had a lot of talk about this on social media.
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting trial. There's a couple of things I, I sort of took away from this. And we've talked about different defibrillation strategies before. We've reviewed a paper looking at AF, where we're comparing AP with um pads. And that showed, actually interesting, that antrolateral was better for the resolution of relatively stable AF. And that that was a bit of a surprise to a lot of people who have preferentially used AP pads in those in the past. This is different. This is a, a, a randomized controlled trial looking at patients who are in refractory VF. And I think it's worth pausing and just saying, what do we mean by refractory VF? And interestingly, I think this will be a surprise to a lot of people. It's somebody who's still in VF after three shocks, which is actually pretty early in the algorithm. The other thing why that's important is if you are working in emergency medicine, or if you're working in an enhanced pre-hospital care service, that means that pretty much all the patients we see are actually refractory VF patients if they're in VF. Almost inevitably, they'll have had three shots before they get to you or before the time you arrive. This is a nice trial. These are patients who are in refractory VF. They've taken 405 patients and they've either done the standard defibrillation procedures, which is usually the antralateral one. They've changed to what they call vector change, which means they've gone from an antrilateral to an AP, usually, or they've gone for what they call double-sequence emergency defibrillation, which is two defibrillators, one antrilateral, one AP, and you fire one, and then you fire the other one about one second later. And what's really interesting in this is that the patients who remained in the standard position had a worse outcome than those who had either the vector change or the double-sequence defibrillation. And actually, the numbers are quite impressive. If you look at survival to hospital discharge, it was more common in those patients who had the double-sequence defibrillation than the standard group, 30.4% versus 13.3%, huge difference. And it was more common in the vector change group than in the standard group, 21% versus 13.3%. Those are big changes now there's lots of reasons why this may not be uh, transferable into day-to-day practice and maybe this is a bit of an excess but it does seem to look like if you've not worked in the standard antralateral position you've done three shocks in that position and it hasn't worked so far then crikey change something and changing to a different position or using two defibrillators seems to be the right plan the other thing that in this paper which i thought was interesting and this is my interpretation of refractory VF, because i i kind of think of it as two different things There's the first group of patients in whom they're in VF or VT, you shock them and they just don't come out of it. And I think changing the positions clearly is an absolutely sensible thing to do in that group of patients because your defibrillation is just not working. So do it differently. The other group is those, the ones who you defibrillate, they seem to go back into what looks like a perfusing rhythm. And then after about 20, 30 seconds, before you get to the next cycle, they've gone back into the F. And I wonder with that group of patients, whether just more energy or a different axis of energy through the chest is really going to make that much of a difference. That group, I always think of them, those are the ones who may benefit from things like amiodarone and possibly some other drugs, which might be more, have a more of an anti-dysrhythmic effect. That's not tested in this study, but it's just
0: one of those things I've always thought about with um, BFBT. And all of this brings us rather nicely to another post that we can just chat about now, where you were sort of considering what is downtime? And this is something, a phrase we use all the time in emergency medicine. What was the downtime? So how long have they been down? Where's their bicep down the CPR? And, and we base a lot of our decision making sometimes on, on what we think might have happened in that period where, well, we didn't see quite what was going on. And this is a very thoughtful post from you, Simon, about downtime. When you were writing this, what made you want to do this and think about it? Was there something that precipitated this? Or is this something that's been on your mind for a while? There was, and I'm not going to give any patient details
1: here, but some time ago, I took a patient into a hospital and they had had a cardiac arrest. We'd arrived relatively soon after they'd first been seen, they'd been shot a couple of times. And then they had a period of about an hour from time of arrest to the time we got them into hospital, where they'd been through a whole bunch of different rhythms. So they'd been in VF, they'd had some VT, they'd had some PEA, And they'd had periods of CPR, and they'd had periods when they had a pulse, and they'd not had the CPR. And so this one hour period was a whole bunch of different things. When when, when I was doing handovers for the patient, they said, well, what's the downtime? And I could have just said an hour. But actually, I just looked at them like an idiot, because I thought, I've no idea what the downtime is. If you're thinking the down, and what do you mean by the downtime? Is it that they had no flow? Or was it that when actually they had what looked like perfusing rhythms and we put the ultrasound on and there was some cardiac motion but it wasn't terribly good you know is that downtime? they've got some output so is it low output is it normal output is it no output and what do i know what was going on during that one hour period so i i i, I said something along the lines of well you know they've been, had essentially been in cardiac arrest pretty much for an hour but they've had periods where they've had a, a pulse and they've had periods where they've had cardiac activity on ultrasound And the team leader went, right, they've had an hour's downtime. I think we know where this is going. We'll just see what we can do. Made me think that I've not really got my message across there. Oh, and also that patient left hospital. They did survive. Those two things together just made me think, actually, I just don't think the term downtime is really very helpful at all. Lots of suggestions online and from colleagues. I think the idea of determining the time from where you met the patient, where you've arrived now, and how much of that time they were having additional support. So how much of that time they actually had the Lucas on or how much of the time proportionally they had CPR and how long those times were for. I think that might be helpful, but just what is a downtime is not a helpful
0: question and won't get a great answer. The older I get, the harder I find this. When to continue, when to stop, what do I know, what don't I know? And there was a period in my life where I was pretty certain, and you may remember someone had did a talk about this once at a SMAC conference of, about a resuscitation, and that question of, did you stop too soon? That really plays on me even more these days, because you do hear the stories of, this patient will do really well, or this patient didn't do well. And then you have an ICU consultant who says, well, what are we trying to achieve here? And I find this really difficult, and I've been doing this a while. So it's lots to think about, and I'm really glad you did this post because it does give us a pause for thought. And perhaps this is the one thing that we will be developing over the next few years, a real understanding of what happens during that period where the patient hasn't got a palpable pulse. Now, cardiac arrest, I think, is a difficult term because often Well, arrest means stop, doesn't it? If a policeman arrests you, they stop you doing something. But here, the heart may not have stopped. It's just not beating as well as we need to get the oxygen to the cells. We need to be more thoughtful. Cardiac arrest is a series of different pathologies, and we can't just lump it under one algorithm with a couple of stems coming off it, I think. No, I agree. And um, yeah, just when you, if you hear yourself saying it, or if you hear other
1: people saying it, just stop yourselves and just think, okay, guys, what actually did I just mean then? And I think we'll we'll get better if we do that.
0: Let's do a little bit more evidence-based medicine and COVID is still with us those of you in the UK and I think around the world, we've had a bit of a tricky few weeks. Um, there is a lot of flu around. There is a lot of COVID around. We've got no- viruses. It's vi- If you're a virologist, this this is your time. This is your moment. But this was a quick blog post from you about the recovery trial, Simon. We've mentioned recovery again, but it bears repetition because it probably was one of the major things that helped us come through the COVID-19 pandemic. But COVID is still around. So we do need to think about what we're going to be doing for these patients. And this was about high dose versus low dose dexamethasone in patients who admitted to hospital with COVID. Now, I'm sure listeners will remember that the use of dexamethasone was a real game changer when COVID was first around. And goodness, doesn't that feel like a lifetime ago? But it, it was only a couple of years ago. And recovery has continued to look at different agents and trying to refine what we do. And Simon, you've done a review here. Perhaps we could just, for the sake of everybody. A little bit about which drugs work in covid which don't how we've learned that from recovery and then we can think about high versus low dose of steroids okay so recovery trial um open label
1: randomized control trial biggest in the world in covid dramatically changed our treatment of covid initially the mortality when in the first wave was about 30 percent it's now down to gosh is it about 14 percent now we've done amazing things with it recovery's looked at loads of drugs what do we know works dexamethasone six milligrams once a day is the standard dose tocilizumab, the REGN monoclonal antibodies in patients who are known to have low levels of their own antibodies at admission, and baricitinib. Those are the drugs which we know work. But also we've demonstrated that we know that things like hydroxychloroquine, lopinavir, ritonavir, convalescent plasma, azithromycin, colchicine, aspirin, don't work. That's a huge number of randomised controlled trials done in a very short period of time, and you know I'm incredibly grateful to um, the recovery team for all that they've done. The dexamethasone was an interesting one. That was the first one that demonstrated a significant decrease in mortality. It's the big drug. Which, you know, saved literally hundreds of thousands of lives worldwide amazing amazing work but the question was how much do you give because the original dose of six milligrams was not particularly evidence-based because we've never seen covid before so was six milligrams too much or not enough and certainly it's a relatively modest dose in this study they compared high dose which is 20 milligrams of dexamethasone once a day with the standard dose of six milligrams, and they look to see if um, you know more is better. And the answer is, to summarize, no, it isn't. In this trial, 18% of the um, patients randomized to high dose died versus 12% of those on the usual care. So that was clinically and statistically um, significant. Um, they got more opportunity infections in the higher group, which we guess is something that we'd find and expect. And it means that our six milligram dose is the one that we should continue at the moment, for the foreseeable future. Nice trial. So it's really good to see that they're looking in this in more detail as time goes by.
0: So evidence-based medicine working in action. None of that 13 or 17 years of uh, knowledge translation, it's it's happening straight away. And, and in a world where so- social media is it's not perhaps always given the most positive spin, this is one of those things where getting the information out there, social media really has helped. And hopefully, blog sites like ours are also helping. Let's take a little turn to the left and think a little bit about trauma. I did a post way back in November and this was about how you can organise fracture clinic follow-up for patients who attend your emergency department but aren't from your area. I'm sure you've had this Simon. We have lots of people who come in in the summer and they've broken a bone because they were doing something fun and they need to go home and they want to be followed up at their home hospital. I have seen so many different bits of advice about how to do this. And usually, dare I say, in the majority of cases, it turns into, oh, just turn up at your local A&E and they'll book you an appointment. I think patients are amazed that that's what we do. It sounds like madness to me. You must have done this, Simon. Oh yeah, and it's insane. And again, the the variability is just incredible, isn't it?
1: As you've you've demonstrated, it's just mad.
0: What I did was I sent out a Freedom of Information uh, Act request. So this is a UK thing. I'm sure other countries have it too, where you can ask for information that's publicly held and public bodies are obliged to give you the information and usually within 28 days. And this is for hospitals in mainly in England. They were the ones I've started with, but hopefully we'll cover the rest of the UK asking them what the arrangement was for a patient who had injured themselves in another area to be then followed up at their hospital. Lots of things came out of this. The bottom line is for you on the shop floor, there is now a directory that you can go to to look for the patient's local hospital and what that hospital has said their local arrangements are. To be honest, lackluster in many areas. And if your hospital, the answer is turn up at A&E, well, maybe see if you can organize something a bit better. And I'm delighted if I can update this directory as we go on. The variation in practice is crazy. So it goes from those trusts which say, just email us the details and we'll sort out an appointment. Okay, well, that seems really straightforward. To that, even worse than turn up your A&E, get an appointment with your GP and then they will refer you. I mean, this is 2023 now. I can't believe it. Anyway, I won't get on a soapbox about it, but hopefully this is a little bit of a method that can help you navigate the craziness that is our NHS a little bit more effectively for our patients. I think it's really helpful. Ian, and and you're, you're
1: right. You know, We are a national health service, but we don't necessarily always act in a national manner, do we? The other thing which is really interesting is the stuff that you've um, got to do with Liz Crow around wellbeing and burnout. And just digging into a little bit more about what these terms actually mean and what they mean in practice. Because I think the terms are just banded around all over the place, aren't they? I mean, I've seen one questionnaire that basically says, ask people about burnout by saying, do you feel burnt out? And if you don't actually understand the term, I'm not entirely sure that that's a, a very helpful way of uh, looking at things.
0: Well, I'm hopeful that if you're listening to this podcast, you are a subscriber to St Emlins, And therefore, you will have listened to the two episodes that we've done with Liz at the start of this series. We're hoping to expand it into this year. But these are the two big questions. What is burnout and what is well-being? And Liz, as a PhD in this topic, is an expert and somebody who can really dig down into the evidence of this. Now, the issues, very briefly, because I'm hoping you've all listened to it, but really burnout has become this ubiquitous term for, gosh, isn't life difficult? And that's not what we mean by burnout. That's not what burnout is. Burnout is a systematic issue to do with organisations and how they treat their staff. It's not a diagnosis of the individual. You cannot be diagnosed with burnout. There are many other things you can be diagnosed with, which may coexist, but burnout is not one of them. And we really need to understand what that is in order that we can put in place the things that will make this better and in this pair of podcasts we've gone into burnout and what that is and how it's described and even down to what the original Maslach burnout inventory was invented for which is most certainly not what it's being used for at the moment and Maslach herself has even said this is not what this was supposed to be used for and then a discussion about what well-being is and As I've banged on about for a long time, well-being is not the sweets, ice creams and uh, yoga classes. That's not well-being. Well-being is the fundamentals of what you feel is looking after you and enabling you to the best you can. And that's different for all of us. So I know, Simon, part of your well-being is when you can get back on a bicycle and you can go out riding a bike. I haven't been on a bicycle for quite a while. And so my well-being, if you said, "Oh, come on a bike ride with me, that would not improve my well-being. In fact, I would dread it. And this is where well-being is a personal thing that you need to know how to access those things. But having a well-being officer and being given an ice cream every now and again is probably not the answer.
1: I completely agree. And I also love the way that you talk about um, life being a balance and sort of work stresses and you know the lot of positives that we get from work, even when it's actually quite difficult, there's still a lot of positives that we get. And we both do jobs, we both, we've talked about it before, haven't we? We both have experiences which are really, really tough. And a lot of people externally would look at it and go, oh, that's terrible. But actually they are quite empowering when things go well and we actually
0: get a lot of reward out of doing some of the the really quite gnarly stuff that we get involved in emergency medicine. And right now in the UK in the NHS, life is not straightforward. And Not least because we're told on a daily basis that it's not straightforward, but you can make a difference and that meaning making. So when you go into work, think of the things you can do that make a difference. And that's as simple as getting a thirsty patient a glass of water, getting a relative, a chair, getting a blanket for somebody who's cold. Now, you might think, well, what's that all about? But that's about forming connection and it's about compassion and it's about empathy. And those are all things that as human beings we really value. And not only do we value them, our patients and their relatives value them. So see meaning in all you do. It's not just, oh, I did this amazing procedure and that was great. Now that may give you meaning on an educational background, but it's not necessarily that interpersonal meaning. And there is meaning for us everywhere we look. And that could just be, checking in with your other staff, seeing how they're doing. It could be those patient interactions. It could just be chatting to somebody for a couple of extra minutes. And in a 10-hour shift, taking three or four minutes extra to chat to a patient and discover a bit about them, that can be all that we need to form that connection. So there is a lot we can do. There is a lot also organizations can do. And I'm delighted that Quite a few senior people in my trust have listened to the Burnout podcast in particular, but we need to reframe this discussion because unless we understand it, we're never going to be able to help people and do something about it. I'm really looking forward to more from Liz and yourself over the next year. I think it's a really important topic, particularly in these difficult times. For listeners, we do want you to tell us if we stray into that fluffy nonsense unicorns and rainbows talk because that is not what we want we know that you want evidence-based medicine we know that you want practical advice so at any point if liz or i stray into and the next best thing is to do some yoga uh, you may please block me on twitter immediately finally simon let's just discuss a bit about the london trauma conference now this is a absolutely a gathering of rock stars and zaf has done fabulous reviews of both days of this conference a lot of uh, is fomo the phrase that the kids use these days it's not just fear of missing out it's realization i missed out there's so much that's gone on in here and there's so much to talk about a lot of it is also an international perspective what do you do with those active shooter incidents goodness me the idea of that happening in my hospital absolutely appalling what do you do with gunshot wounds what is the difference between different weapons and it's like another world but it is a world we live in what I liked about it, and I was gutted that
1: I couldn't go this year because um, I actually had an offer to go, not as a speaker, just as an attendee. And um, I really, really wanted to go, but just couldn't make the dates work. What I'm getting out of Zaf's uh, blog post, things like the the stuff on the critical limb ischemia and the the um, blocks for chest trauma, are uh, there's stuff out there which we could be doing now. And, you know, some of those things we are doing in Manchester. But it's that it's that little driver, isn't it? To say, well, actually, there's excellence in other areas around the world that we could bring back to our own place. So, you know, I'm desperate to go again um, next year. I really hope that I can go down and join them as a delegate. The lovely summary from Zaf there, so I'd strongly
0: recommend anybody who's interested in trauma should really have a look at this. It's um, it's great. And definitely put the date in your diary. It's always in December. It's run in the Kensington area of London, which is a very nice part of the world to be in around Christmas time. But the the speakers are, are incredible. You know, David Nott who I wish I could meet really, alongside the proper, proper high flying people who, let's be honest, don't just talk about trauma, they're doing it day to day. And I think that's what makes a good conference, isn't it? Seeing the people who are doing the job, not just talking about it. Simon, so, mean, I think that's pretty much it for our two months with a discussion of all the blog posts. There's so much more to come in 2023. We've both got projects ongoing. i Going to just do a little plug here for St. Emlyn's Medical School, which I have launched and has taken a little break as holidays do with the universities over the Christmas period, but we'll be back with more podcasts. So, if you know anybody who's either at medical school or it's great for people who are just starting out in medicine or are in allied health professionals. So, I was sharing it with some of my paramedic colleagues at the Hampshire and Isle of Wight Air Ambulance this weekend. The podcast, the blog posts, they're all there. And it's that time of year where final year medical students are looking to their exams. And we have got a version of Trudy Pestle's amazing OSCE revision and other uh, key exam revision aids that we took from the FCHEM. And we've adapted that for medical students. So that's all on that site, too. So th- there's lots to see there. Simon, what would be your highlight of 2023, do you think? What you've, We've talked about the Dean stuff. What else are you looking forward to?
1: And Undoubtedly, St Emlyn's Wild is going to be wild. It's going to be very different, very interesting. So I'm
0: really looking forward to that. I have to admit that that should be good. And and it does feel more and more we're getting back into the normal life of medical education, doesn't it? It feels like there's a, a bit of a time for a change. We can take all we've learned from COVID about online learning and we can use that in in-person learning and we can deliver proper, proper education. And I'm, I'm quite excited to be involved with that, I have to admit. Simon, that's it. For November and December, we'll be back in 2023 with the posts from January, as well as other special editions of the podcast. Please do like and subscribe and tell your friends about St Emlyn's. We would love to share the message that we hope you are receiving from us and keep smiling as best you can. Keep finding meaning in all you're doing. Remember that what you do really matters and we'll speak to you soon. Take care, everyone.